tonight. We're going to be in Judges chapter 8. What we saw the last time was Gideon, the judge, his victory over the Midianites. Now tonight is going to be interesting because we're going to see Gideon's difficult battle with his own people and with his own victory. Now, Satan has a lot of tools at his disposal. One, one of his more used tools, I would say, is discouragement. If he can get us being discouraged, he can try to win the battle and make Christians ineffective. But another tool that Satan has that I noticed is, um, and we see it here tonight, is what happens when we do what we do in the victory. We're always talking about how do we behave as Christians in the trials, trials. We're always talking about trials. But as Christians, how do we behave when we have victory? And we're going to see Gideon and how he handles victory. And then we're going to kind of take the application to us and see how what we can learn a lesson from his life. So starting with verse 1. It says, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Gideon, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him abated when he said that. So what we see is that Gideon's winning the battle. He's still got a few more things he's got to do. But the Ephraimites were the largest tribe, okay, of the children of Israel. And they had a tendency to be a little prideful. Uh, They were a little upset with Gideon because, you know, they weren't asked to participate necessarily in the beginning on taking the Midianites. Probably, if I could take a guess... God probably didn't use them because of their pride, and they would have thought, ha, Ephraim does it again, look at us. So, and we also see that Gideon whittled 32,000 men all the way down to 300. And that probably would have caused problems because the Ephraimites would have had that worldly wisdom like, what are you doing? You know, use all of our people. How could you bring us down to 300? But, so they rebuke Gideon. Gideon has a response. It's an interesting response. A few ways to look at this is... You could look at it as he says, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezar, which was the Abiezar was um, Gideon's household, okay? And we know who Ephraim is. The first response, it could be, isn't it better to reap the fruits with your land given back to you than to have your people die trying to free the land? So, look, the end result was good, guys. You know, what do you want from me? (laughs) Uh, The second thing, how you can look at it is probably even more importantly, he might have been saying to them, listen, your part was the most important part. Remember, you guys took the princes, Oreb and Zeb. Hey, bravo, great job. Um, The slaying of the Midianite princes. You guys had a big part in this, appealing to their, I don't know, maybe ego in a sense. But these were both diplomatic answers from Gideon. For a different take, um, Wearsby had a different approach on this too. Warren Wearsby. He says, Ephraim, however, missed out on acquiring some valuable spoils of war from the over 100,000 soldiers, and this may have been what irritated them. This is conjecture. Usually when people criticize something you've done, there's a personal reason behind their criticism, and you may never find out what the real reason was. Since David's unselfish law governing the dividing of the spoils of war hadn't been established yet, we'll come to that in 1 Samuel 30, Those who didn't participate in the battle didn't share in the loot. 
When the men of Ephraim should have been thanking Gideon for delivering the nation, they were criticizing him and adding to his burdens. So that's something I didn't even think of, but that's good. Uh, so this kind of falls. And what's, what's fascinating is that we don't read in the scripture where prior to Gideon, the Ephraimites didn't all raise up and say, hey, we, we've been oppressed far too long by these Midianites. Let's go out and, and, and under the Lord, let's go take these guys. Not a peep out of the Ephraimites until Gideon, of course, starts winning the battle, right? This kind of falls under you can't please everyone. Uh, <laughs> they weren't happy with the role that God gave them, the Ephraimites. And they also weren't happy with the leader God gave them. And there's funny, uh, there's three interesting responses to Gideon's conquest. The first one, which we just read, is anger. They're angry at him. Hey, we should have had a bigger part. We're going to see later that he uh, goes through some different answers, the men of Succoth and Penuel, and they're rebellious against Gideon. They don't even want to help. They don't care that it's the Lord's battle. They're afraid that the tide may turn. We're going to see that. And the third thing that we're going to see is another extreme is uh, further towards the end, there's a, a group of Israelites that are so thrilled with what Gideon's done, they want him to be their king. So you have, you have people responding to this guy in all areas of the spectrum. That's why as a leader you can't take public opinion polls because you're always going to make somebody unhappy. Verse 4, it says, When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. So what you have is Gideon is in the last throes of the battle pursuing the enemy and his men, and most likely he, are exhausted. They're drained. You know, they, they need a little refreshment. Um, so they pass through Succoth and Penuel, which are about 20 miles south of the initial battle on the east side of the Jordan River. And Succoth and Penuel refuse sustenance to Gideon's men out of fear of the battle changing hands. Now there's two sins here. Number one is the sin of omission. The Bible is clear in Proverbs and also James that... Uh, you know, if you, you know to do good and you can do good and you don't do good to that person, it's sin. It's worded a little bit differently, but James 4, and I forget which proverb is, says the same thing. So there's sins of omission. They could have done something good. You know, this was the Lord's battle and they didn't. The other thing, there was a lack of faith. Well, we don't really know if we want to help you because there's only 300 of you and there's about 15,000 of them. And if they turn around and say, hey, there's only 300 of you, I'm paraphrasing, and they come and beat you up. We don't want any part of that because then they're going to come after us. So, notwithstanding, there was, what, hundred and at this point, 120,000 that were wiped out. So, I mean, the Midians were almost practically decimated. So the whole logic is, is, is messed up. But, again, it's worldly thinking. Uh, another, <laughs> I don't normally do this, but I, I found a, looked at a few commentaries and found some fascinating answers. Uh, another commentary on this chapter says that it says for fear that Gideon should fail and thereby the Midianites would rise back up they refused even food to his weary followers it is said when petulance is shown because of a seemingly slight 
in connection with the Lord's work as it was with Ephraim. But it is very much sadder when sympathy is shown to the enemy and help refused to the servants of God, who, though faint, are yet pursuing. The problem witnessed here is all too often the problem in the modern church. Many Christians, instead of helping to win victories for the Lord, try to hinder those who are winning victories. So it's, we can see, again, in the Old Testament, so much application to even modern day and the New Testament. Um, now, the question is, why was there a different standard for Ephraim and Penuel? Uh, wait, is Ephraim, uh, Gideon's kind of diplomatic with him, and then Penuel and Succoth, as we see, he comes back and he kills these people. The first one is Ephraim complained, but they helped. <laughs> At least they were willing to engage the enemy and they were, okay, you're the leader, God's chosen you, we'll help out. But they complained. Now, Penuel and Succoth outright rebelled. I mean, this was sustenance that his men were probably famished and just on their last legs of, of physical exertion and they could have used some bread and some water. So they outright rebelled and they refused to help God's anointed. So you can see the difference there. Verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left, of all the army of the people of the east. For 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbaha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. So he finally captures the two kings to slay them. Verse 13. Then Gideon the son of Joash returned from battle from the ascent of Heres, and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary army, or weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Uh, Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So the indication, if not outright stated in both of these cases, is that uh, the leaders responsible for refusing aid were killed. He finds a young man in the city. He goes, who are the elders? He points them out, and that's the end of them. Um, So pretty strong punishment. Verse 18. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. So apparently these kings, um, they're being interrogated now by uh, Gideon. Uh, Apparently, by their own admission, these kings had a personal involvement with the slaying of Gideon's brothers. Now comes the justice phase. Now, in Numbers 35, uh, in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, it actually allowed for a family to avenge the guilty. They didn't have a police force, as we know of, and uh, a more intricate system of law enforcement and investigations. So in the law, it was set up that if some member of your family was killed, you had the right to avenge the manslayer if he was truly guilty and you can slay him. And it's funny because all the checks and balances, even in the Old Testament, there were cities of refuge that if it was not determined that the person actually did it maliciously and it was an accident, 
the manslayer could flee to a city of refuge and they could find out what the whole story was and he would have sanctuary there. And the cities of refuge were scattered all throughout Israel. So you see the checks and balances. But bottom line is, uh, certainly Gideon had the right to avenge his brother's deaths. And remember, we're dealing with the Old Testament here. Kind of reminds me of, or you know, what I could, all I could think of in my mind was when you spread enough evil, it eventually catches up to you. There's a worldly term, what goes around comes around, right? Even somebody made a song about it. But it, it's, it's kind of the biblical version there. Um, I like, I'm a, vi- I'm a big um, uh, history buff. After World War II, the Nazis incorporated a lot of Eastern Europeans and Europeans into the Nazi ranks. And so people that weren't Germans or Austrians would wear the uniforms. And after World War II and the tide turned, the townspeople rose up in a lot of these satellite countries and they, they beat the Nazis to death. They killed them. Uh, so the Germans, after World War II, they couldn't get those uniforms off fast enough to get like farmers' clothes and put them on because they knew that vengeance was coming. So when you spread enough evil, it eventually catches up to you. You see it even with criminals. They have a long rap sheet. Eventually, they die of an overdose or they get shot by the police or, you know, something, get killed in prison. Spread enough of it, it eventually catches up to you. Okay, verse 21. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the camel's necks. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, the Lord shall rule over you. So we leave off with um, Gideon's son. He's afraid. He's a kid, you know, maybe a teenager, never killed anybody before. He doesn't want to do it. Uh, so the kings say, hey, why don't you do it? <laughs> now, you might think they were saying they were taunting him, but it is possible that, you know, a good soldier would be used to this kind of bloodshed and one swell fell swoop and they would end it, take their heads off. Probably if the kid did it, he would have botched it. So it is possible that these kings were like taunting Gideon so that he could do it cleanly and they wouldn't have to suffer. A lot of different reasons for it. Um, The wording in the Hebrew to English is you can't always get exactly what they're saying there. Uh, But anyway, verse 21, they took away the crescent-shaped ornaments, and we're going to come back to this. In verse 22 and verse 23, they say to Gideon, all right, this is a different group of Israelis. They say, hey... Why don't you be our king? This is great. You know, you slayed the Minions. We're, we're happy. We're free. There was probably dancing and celebration. People could walk out in the open streets without being harassed. And uh, they want Gideon to be their king. Now, this was a, an appeal to Gideon's pride, no doubt. Think about it. If any of us were in that position and everyone in New Jersey said, be our king or be our queen, right away, you know, you, your pride is going to start. Funny things are going to start to happen inside of you. Just like people who instantly get rich overnight. They start to change, you know. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but it does happen. Um, Whatever you think of Gideon at this point, he still knows his place under God's authority. Okay? He still knows his place. You can never be a good leader unless you know how to be under authority. 1 Thessalonians 5 also speaks of that. And Gideon certainly knew that God was above him, and he shouldn't usurp that and take that position, because God did not offer it to him. Okay? Verse 24. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you. This is where things go bad. That each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. 
for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Orphra. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon in his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. few things here. A few things that stand out to me is, number one, the Ishmaelites and the crescent ornaments. I don't know how many people have made this case, but it almost seems like you, know, you, you can see the people groups over, over time and where they hang out and what they become and who they become and religions and all that kind of stuff. And what I'm getting at is this might have been a forerunner of Islam. Um, Islam, if you ask somebody who's Muslim and they've studied their history, they'll tell you we can trace our lineage back to the Ishmaelites. Now, Abraham, had uh, his first son was Ishmael with Hagar, the handmaiden. God wanted him to have his first son with his wife. So his second born, uh, Isaac, was actually the son of the promise. And this is where the contention even today is between the Jews and the Muslims. The Muslims say, well, God always chose his firstborn, so we're the sons of the promise, the Ishmaelites. And the Jews say, no, Isaac was the son of the promise, according to God's direction in the book of Genesis. Um, so you see that whole thing with Ishmael. And the Ishmaelites apparently settled, their descendants settled in somewhere in Arabia. The other thing is the crescent moon. Uh, this was a common worship back then. Uh, in those days, if you didn't know the one true God, you would worship the sun because it was big and powerful, or the moon, or the sea because it was big and powerful. Anything that was bigger than you, and in your ignorance, you would worship it. Hopefully it would give you protection. Uh, so there was a moon god that was worshipped. And the crescent moon, the crescent ornaments, actually adorn a lot of the top of the mosques today. And if you look at the Muslim flags, most of them have the, the crescent moon on that. So again, there may have been a precursor. Uh, it's interesting. Gideon's request, make an ephod. What's an ephod? Okay, if you know your Old Testament history, uh, an ephod was a vest worn by the high priest. And he used it to seek God's counsel. Right? So he takes the plunder from all the dead Ishmaelites, um, Midianites, and all those guys, and uh, he takes it, he puts it in a big thing, and he melts it down, and he fashions this ephod, which was this, again, this vest that was consulted by the high priest. So it was, a, it was a copy. It was something that he shouldn't have done. According to the amount of gold that was involved, it could have been in upwards of a half a million dollars. So this was a lot of gold that they took. Um, so the question is, what possessed Gideon to do this thing? Because what happens is, what, I don't know whether his intentions were uh, you know, really bad or what, but they, it turned into something bad. Because the children of Israel now saw this ephod and they started worshiping it. Remember Moses. Remember Moses had the, in the wilderness, he had the children of Israel were bit by poisonous serpents. And he lifted up the pole with the serpent on it. He made a bronze serpent and, and a pole. And if you looked at, into that, that pole, it was a picture of Christ. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't die from the snake bites. And they worshipped that. So here's just another thing that's made that they worshipped. Okay? It just goes to show you that humans are hopeless when it comes to needing to worship something that's a, a type of tangibility to them. And that's why it's um, forbidden in the Ten Commandments. Okay? Thou shalt not uh, make a graven image of anything that is 
in heaven above or on the sea below or on the earth and worship it. He's, you know, one of the Ten Commandments. Don't make an image and worship it. Whether it was in the Old Testament with the children of Israel or even in some sects of Christianity, people looked for something tangible to worship, and it's forbidden expressly in Scripture. Verse 29. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father, and Ophrah, the Abiezerites. So along with the ephod, it goes to show the fallen nature of man, no matter how much he used by, he's used by God. Now you may say to me, what... You kind of make it sound like Gideon's a good guy. And then, you know, Pastor Joe, you kind of make it sound like Gideon's not such a good guy. I've said this in the beginning of the study of Gideon uh, several Wednesdays back, that Gideon is a man of contradictions. Now, Gideon's contradictions were really kind of, they were really swinging one way or the other. I mean, he refused to be the, the children of Israel's king. A lesser man would have succumbed to that and said, hey, that's great, give me the robe and the, and the crown, I'll take the job. Um, but... He also took multiple wives, which was forbidden in Scripture, and he constructed this ephod. So Gideon was a man of contradictions. He swung wildly. Sometimes he did things that were really good. He won the battle. And then sometimes he did things that were really bad. But honestly, if we look at our own lives, even as Christians, we do things that are contradictory. And, and I, I say this over and over again. We can pick on the characters in the Old Testament you know, especially the children of Israel. How could they do that? God opened up the Red Sea. I wouldn't have done that if I was there. Yes, you would have, and probably I would have too. Complaining and grumbling, you know, we don't like the stinking manna, give us something nice to eat, and go back to Egypt. But, you know, we have contradictions in our lives too as Christians. They may not be, hopefully they don't swing as wildly as Gideon's did, but we do that. You know, we can have our really good days and we're really serving the Lord, and sometimes the way we behave, we hope that we don't open our mouths to somebody. Are you a Christian? Oh, don't ask that question. You know, it's not a good day for me. So he was a man of contradictions. Verse 33, and we'll wrap it up. And it was so, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Another Bible commentator, Hervey, says, Forgetfulness of God is often the parent of ingratitude towards men. Think about that. If you forget God, you're not going to, be, you're not going to show any gratitude towards your fellow man. If you don't have the basic standards to treat people good that you've learned from God himself, so you're not going to treat people good. It's a no-brainer, right? Three really cool points to ponder here, and I really enjoyed coming up with these points. Number one, did you notice that the last time we hear about Gideon's men, there were 300, okay? So they're still pursuing the 15,000, and the 300 are still intact, even after taking care of the 120,000 of the Midianites. What this goes to show you is that if God calls you, you know, Arnie, Dave, you know, um, Rachel, anybody, if God calls you to be victorious in a particular difficult battle, don't worry about the casualties. Well, what about this, God? Well, what about this? Well, that's difficult. Well, what if this happens? And what if... No. God says, do it, just do it. Yeah, it's difficult. He's testing you. Okay? Well, let, let God worry about the casualties. Second point. 15,000 were routed. 
it appears a small number of them weren't captured or killed. Routed, dispersed, discomfited, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't specifically say that the last 15,000 were killed, but apparently the Midianites weren't a threat to the children of Israel anymore. If you make a spiritual or physical application, if you're dieting, it's always that last 10 pounds that you can't lose. In a spiritual application, it's the last vestiges of sin and evil in our lives that sometimes seem to be the hardest to rid. When we all got saved and said, I want to, I want to serve Jesus, you know, some of the things we put away more quickly than others. And over the years, we still struggle with some of those last 10 to 15 that we can't get rid of. So, you know, it's so cool to see the, the analogies that you could take from the Old Testament and really put into our lives. The third point that I like the best is, and I said this in the beginning, what's done after the victory is just as important, if not more important, than the victory itself. Think about this. When King David was the king, and he wasn't fighting the lion and the bear, and when he wasn't fighting with his brothers who were, you know, had the, the rights that he didn't have, or you know, trying to prove that he was something in the world, and he was the king. The battle was going on, the war was raging. David was like, yeah, King David was like, I'm going to stay home. He's on the, on the roof, he sees Bathsheba bathing. He committed some of the most heinous sins of his, of his life while he was winning the victory. Think about that. Adultery, murder, right? Um, I mean, it was, it was out of control. And God said, you're, you're going to lose your child from this. This isn't going to be good for you. Uh, so what we see is that in the victory is more important that we have to get grounded in the Lord because we tend to leave the Lord in the dust. All right, the Lord got me. I was so close to the Lord in that trial. And then things are starting to go really good. And then you kind of run ahead of the Lord and leave him behind. You know? So some of you tonight may feel that, you know what, I just can't get victory. There's something in my life, and I don't know what it is. It could be anything. When I say that, there's something in your life that you need victory over. And you're, you all have something that just popped up to the front of your, your frontal lobe there, okay? And it's all different. And you may say, I don't know if I'm ever going to get past this. I'm never going to have victory in Christ. Understand this. Eventually, you will have victory in Christ. However, God is preparing you now through the hard times that when you get that victory, don't leave him in the dust. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes he allows the, the trial to become a little bit longer and, and really burn it into the memory in your brain so that when you have that victory and you are just thrilled and you're stoked that you remember what God did and where he brought you and not to be pompous and pride and arrogant in that victory. And you know what? I say the same thing, you know? So... God may be preparing you to be able to properly handle the victory. Let's pray.